0: there was a single passage that has haunted me the most since the very first time I read it years ago until this very day. It's the one I want to look at with you this morning. It's found in Revelation chapter 2. Revelation chapter 2, we're going to read five verses together. That's it. And and those five verses, um, again, ha- have haunted me. I'm um, over my life as a Christian and over my time in ministry probably more than any other. And uh, and, and here's what's going on. In Revelation chapter 2, Jesus is speaking to um, his church. He's speaking to the church in Ephesus. And, and I just want to read it with you. I want you to see um, what he has to say. Revelation chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. says, To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven gold lampstands. That's, that's Jesus, by the way, in case you're wondering who that is. He says, I know your deeds, your hard work and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked men, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not, and you have found them false. You have persevered and have endured hardships for my name, and you have not grown weary. I just want to, I want to pause there for a moment, right? I mean, listen to that carefully. He says, listen, I know your good deeds. Because this is a church that is, is not, they don't just meet together and, and just kind of sit and not have an impact. This church does things for the Lord, right? They, they have a positive impact in their community, they're, they're, they're doing good deeds. It's huge. He says, "I, I know your hard work." That, that phrase in Greek it, it talks it says, literally translates, "I know you've taken a beating for my names' sake. You, you're, you're working hard. you're working your fingers to the bone church. I know that about you. He says, "I, I know your perseverance." means to be steadfast or to, to be constant. It's a term that talks about patient in endurance. He says, I, I know that you love right doctrine, right? You, you have tested and proven to be false many men claiming to be apostles. And like, you know the word of God and I know that about you, Jesus says. He says, I, I know that you've endured hardships for my name's sake and yet you haven't grown weary. Right? If we if we pause there, we would say, This is a great church. Like, th- let that be said of us, right? May, may that be said of us would, that, that we would know doctrine and be able to test false doctrine, that we would do good deeds, that we would endure hardship for, for the namesake of Christ. This, this is a great those are excellent qualities, aren't they? And yet I want you to see what the Lord has to say to this church that's done excellent things. Verse 4 and 5. It says, yet. That's a bad word, by the way, right there. Like, I mean, you've done so good, you've done... But. Yet, I hold this against you. You have forsaken your first love. Remember the height from what you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. In other words, you've done really good stuff. You've done excellent things. You've done excellent things, but you've missed the mark. You've you've missed the mark. You've been excellent, but you've lost your focus. You need to remember the height from which you've fallen. You need to repent and you need to return to doing the things that you used to do. See, they were excellent, but they missed the mark. So what is the mark then? What is the thing that is more important than all that other stuff they were doing? What is the mark? It's in verse 4. Love for God. It says, you have forsaken your first love. Remember that height that you've fallen from. Repent. That means that they had sinned. They'd missed the mark. That's what sin means, to miss the mark. They'd missed the mark. They needed to remember what it was like when they loved God. They needed repent of not loving God with all of their heart, all of their mind, all of their soul, and they needed to return to doing the things that they did when they loved God with everything that they were. And here's here's what I fear for the church today. Like the global church, you know, I mean, it's a really big church. Like our town has 50 million churches in this little tiny town. And then the next town over has 50 million. You add all, so the global church, here's my fear for the global church, right? And and us individually as a church and individually as Christians, I fear that what has happened to the church in Ephesus may have happened to us as well. That somewhere along the way, we stopped aiming for obedience and we started aiming for excellence. And friends, I'm here to tell you that you can be excellent and still completely miss the mark. So let's talk about that this morning, if you don't mind. And I would start here. There's a huge difference between obedience and excellence, right? So obedience is about perfection, Okay, so obedience, I, I would say this, it's, it's, on a, on, on, it's about a vertical standard, right? You either obey or you don't obey. Parents, we know this, don't we? There's no such thing as a child halfway obeying you. That's not obedience, right? So it's based on a set or a fixed standard. And so in an obedience is about perfection to that standard. Anything short of that is disobedience. You follow me? And, and so here's the thing about obedience. Here's the thing about perfection. It is costly. Right it is costly. It is extremely expensive. It, it takes something You don't get it without hard work, right? And and here's the problem guys. See we live in a world like in the business world um, by the way, did you know that there are no businesses that actually aim for perfection? Did you know that like some of them claim to but there's not a business on earth that actually seeks to produce a product without flaws Because it's too costly you, you can't produce a product with no flaws and still make money. And, and so this is what they do. They aim for excellence. And excellence is totally different than perfection. Excellence is not based on a vertical standard. Rather, excellence is based on a horizontal standard. It means that we look to our left and we look to our right and we see what else is out there and we, we make our product just a little bit better than them, right? So that we're the, let's say, vacuum cleaners, for instance. So I want to produce a vacuum cleaner cleaner and there's no way that I can produce a perfect vacuum cleaner that always sucks that never gets clogged that never has to be repaired because to produce that would cost more than somebody would pay for a vacuum cleaner just would and so what I do is I look around at the other vacuum cleaners and I say I can get my vacuum cleaner to have higher horsepower than that I can put it at this price point and get this that that's excellent so I make a really good product but it's not it's not perfect And the difference between that and perfection is profit. It's profit. Now take that mindset with me into the church if you don't mind. What happens when we take that same kind of thought process into the church and we begin to aim for excellence and not obedience? What does that look like? Well, I mean, we're probably going to go to church, right? I mean, because we're comparing ourselves to others anyway. So I've got to go to church. That's kind of a a key point there. And so I'm going to go to church and I'm probably going to give to the church. I mean, some. I'm not going to give so much it hurts, but I'm going to give. I'm going to, you know, regularly, I'll get something up for my taxes, for crying out loud. I, I mean, I, everybody suffers for taxes, so I've got to give to a charitable organization while they still last in the United States of America, um, and so I'm going to do that, and, and uh, in addition, um, you know, the church seems to talk about this, I'll probably serve somewhere, I'll do that, because I served on PTA, my kids were in school for crying out loud, and I baked brownies, so I'll serve somewhere in the church, I can either greet people, or I'll make a meal for somebody, or I'll help out with some kiddos, so I'll serve, um, and then the church always talks talks about discipleship right about growing in the Lord and so I'll go to a Sunday school class maybe or oh I heard they have these small groups I'll do that because then I don't have to answer any questions oh yes you do in small group um but what else can I do what else oh you know what I may even I may even read the Bible on my own a little bit now hear me friends that puts me head and shoulders above my neighbor man that that, I'm pretty good at this Christian thing aren't I I am a pretty good Christian, by golly, because I go to church and I give and I serve, right? And, and I'm, I'm, I'm being discipled and, uh, and, yeah, and I'm reading my Bibles. So I am pretty stinking good at this Christian thing, I tell you. Because after all, my neighbor, they're CEO Christians, you know, Christmas and Easter only. So I'm, I'm doing pretty good. And, and here's the problem. This, this comparison of excellence never ceases. Man, it just, it can go on and on and on. And so now, uh, I, because now I'm going to compare myself. Wait, there's other people doing this too? Well, maybe I'm not so excellent. I better do more. And so now, you know what I'm going to do now? Now I'm going to learn all of my spiritual gifts. I'm going to take one of those tests online. I'm going to learn every single one of them. I, I learned I had 52 gifts. I'm going to start to learn how to use them now. That'll take the rest of my life. Now, oh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to add to it. You know what? I'm going to dive in now to systematic theology. I'm going to learn about all of the big thoughts about God and all the controversies. I'm going to figure all that stuff out. I'm going to dive in head first. You know what else? I'm going to memorize scripture by God. I'm going to memorize the book of Leviticus, right? You take the animal and you hold its head and you cut from here to there and you, you let it pour. I mean, take it outside. I'm going to remember every detail of that because that'll make me excellent. But friends, I'm here to tell you that you can be excellent and completely miss the mark. That that may make you excellent, but it doesn't mean that you'll be obedient. See, here's the problem with that kind of lifestyle, right? Ready? And and, and this is our first point. The problem with that is that God aims for our hearts. And he expects our hearts to aim for him, right? Right? God aims for our hearts and he expects our hearts to aim for him. This is the story of the Bible, by the way. Right. God created mankind in his own image, male and female. He created it. And so God formed us and he fashioned, and he made us in his image and he made us to be with him. When we're made in his image or made in his likeness, he gave us every communicable attribute that he could. That means any every single attribute of God that he can give us without making us God. He gave us. And the greatest of those attributes was the ability to love. And so God makes us in his image, and he makes us to be with him, and he makes us like him. And check this out, he loves us so much that he surrounds us with everything that we need for life and contentment, everything. And his hope, his aim, was that out of appreciation for for life and breath and goodness and, and, and all of the provision was that we might love him back. That we would choose to love him because love can never be forced. It is always a choice. And yet, get this, in, in our selfishness, we did not choose to elevate God and to love God with all of our heart and soul and mind for all that he was and all that he had done for us. Rather, we chose to love ourselves because we wanted to be like God. We we thought, God, you gave me all of these good things, yet you held back your godly characteristics, and I want those too. And so we rejected God, and we rebelled against God. And at that moment, we lost God, and we lost his life. Now, here's how we would think. I don't know about you, but this is how I would process that. I would assume at that moment that I not only lost God, I not only lost his life, but I'd also lost his love. That's probably what I deserved. But the love of God was unlike any kind of love that had ever been known. It's a love that pursued a rebellious people. Pursued them and pursued them and pursued them. And that is what God has done for us. God has pursued us with this love. And he's always aimed for one place. Old Testament to new. Here's the story, ready? He's always aimed for the human heart. He, he wants to take hearts of stone and he wants to make them into hearts of flesh. He wants to take hearts that are dead and he wants to bring them back to life. He wants to take his will and his ways. He wants to take all of his goodness and, and, and all of his guidance. And he doesn't want to put them on stone tablets. He wants to write them and imprint them on living, beating hearts within inside of our chest. That, that's the story of God. That is God's aim. It has always been our heart. He wants to capture our hearts that Jeremiah 17, 9, are deceitful above all else and beyond cure. God God seeks to capture our hearts, James chapter 4, from which flow all of our sin and divisiveness and fighting. God wants those. I don't get it, but that's what he wants. God wants to capture our hearts, and when God aims at the heart, he does so with with the envisioning of complete capture, not, not 5%, not 10%, not half. God doesn't settle for that. He wants our whole heart. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 22. I want to show you this truth fleshed out in Scripture. Matthew chapter 22. I'm going to start in verse 34. It says, hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, the Pharisees got together and one of them, an expert in the law, tested him with this question. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law. And Jesus replied, Love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your mind. This is the first and the greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All of the law of the prophets hang on these two commandments. Now notice verse 37 again. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your mind. So the greatest commandment of scripture, right? Go make disciples. That's surely it. No, that's, that's a great commission. We've elevated that one. It's really important. But, but that's not the reason that, that we exist. The command that speaks to our, our, our way of purpose and existence. Listen, I can go make disciples and still miss the mark. That's, that's the point, right? Hey, hey, what, about, um, what about knowing God? Surely that's why I exist. God created me. The reason I exist, the reason he knit me together was to know him, right? Um, um, so I got to read my Bible. That's how I get to know God. Nope. I mean, it's important. It's like important to read your Bible, know God, study theology, all that good stuff. That's good, but you could, you could do that well. You could be excellent at that, and you could totally miss the mark. Well, what about um, giving money to the poor? That's it, right? I mean, that's a hard... I mean, come on, widows and orphans, this is pure religion. Do you know you can be awesome at pure religion and still miss the mark? You could still miss the mark because the mark isn't that... That's important, but that's not actually why you were formed and fashioned and knit together. You were formed, fashioned, knit together, created in order to love God. That's it. It's, it it's, I know it's crazy because we've overcome it. But you were actually made to love God with all that you are and all that you have. That's your purpose in life, right? If your life were a book, loving God would not just be chapter one. If your life were a book, loving God would be the first word of chapter 1 to the last word of the final chapter, and everything else in that book would just be a footnote. That's how much we're called to love God. The Apostle Paul writes it this way, 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Let's look at it together. 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Starting in verse 1. He says, if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels but I have not love, I'm only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If if I have the gift of prophecy and I can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give all that I possess to the poor and I surrender my body to the flames but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind. It doesn't envy. It doesn't boast. It's not proud. It is not rude. It's not self-seeking. It's not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love doesn't delight in evil but rejoices with truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails but where there are prophecies, they're going to cease, and where there are tongues, they'll be stilled. Where there's knowledge, it'll pass away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part, but when perfection comes, the imperfect disappears. I could go on and read the rest of the chapter to you. It ends with these famous words, and now these three remain, faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is love. Did you catch all that? You can have amazing spiritual gifts. I mean, listen to what it says. You could speak in the tongues of men and of angels, right? You, you could have the gift of prophecy, and it says, and fathom all mysteries and knowledge. You, you could be like Solomon, and it's nothing without love. You, you, could have, it's a, you could be a superhero of faith. You could be the one guy that actually looks at Mount Rushmore and says, I think instead of South Dakota, you should be in South Carolina. Boom. Like you could be that guy, and without love, you are nothing. It doesn't matter. If you don't have a love for God, these things are are meaningless. You, You go through all of them. They're all worthless, even radical obedience. That's a hard word to accept. You could literally give away all of your possessions to the poor. You could literally become such a pacifist that you say to all people, just attack me and do whatever you want. Light me on fire. They could do that, and it would be meaningless if it's not done out of love for God. And, and, and friends, we do it all the time. We do it all the time. This is what Jesus is speaking about to the church in Ephesus, and his words should rattle us to our core. If we're not spending our lives on loving God, then we're missing the mark. If we're not spending our lives on loving God, we're missing the mark because all the other commands, all the other stuff hinges upon this single truth that God has loved us and he expects us to love him back with all that we are and with all that we have. It's what our lives should be about. It's what our lives should be known for, by the way. Do you know that that should be the first marker that people that don't know you see in you? They should literally look at you and go, hey, man, that person really loves God. I wonder, is that how people feel about you? Not, not just people you don't know. What about people you know? Is that what your family thinks of you? Do you think, man, oh my gosh. And my dad, he loves God so much. And my husband, my wife, she is such a lover of God. That's not what comes to mind Something's broken in us. And we've got to remember that height from which we fall, and we've got to repent and do the things we did at first. And so we start there, continuation of that point. Number two, we're almost done, I promise. Anything that we do that is not done out of love for God misses the mark. Anything that we do... That is not done out of love for God misses the mark. And you go back to the church of Ephesus in the book of Revelation and friends, they are doing excellent things. And we have a tendency to think that excellence is enough. But I'm doing good things, Lord. See all the good that I'm doing. And God says, it does not matter to me. You need to repent is what you need to do. But wait a second. God, look at this, I'm doing good works, I'm doing good in the community. Don't you see the good that I'm doing? He says, yeah, but you don't love me, so it doesn't matter. Doesn't matter. But but, but look, I have such a heart for discipleship, and I started this class, and I've got people going through it. You won't make good disciples without loving me. It all starts here. It all starts here. So since we seem to be about tough teachings this morning, let me share one more with you, right? Because when you're already just enjoying it, you might as well dive a little deeper in, okay? 1 Corinthians 10.31. 1 Corinthians 10.31. So whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. So Revelation 2 right, tells us that it is possible to be excellent and completely miss the mark. 1 Corinthians 13 says that, that if I'm doing anything without love, it's pointless and it's useless. And then we read this, and this basically says that everything in my life must be directed from a heart that is absolutely in love with God. You, you hear? I didn't say that love's God. I said a heart that is absolutely in love with God, and there's a difference, right? We know this, how many people have been married for many years? You know there's a difference. When you dated and that person made your, made your stomach do the butterfly, googly, woo, goodness gracious, you just got almost sick and sweaty-handed and palm. That's in love. It's not just in like. You get married long enough, you say, man, I love my wife. Man, I appreciate her. Yeah, but are you passionate about her still? Like, do, do you long for those moments when the kids are in bed so that you can sit and talk? There's a huge difference between loving God and being in love with God. 1 Corinthians 10.31 teaches me that everything in my life has to be directed from a heart that is absolutely in love with God, a heart that puts all of its hope in God. So what does it look like to be in love with God, ready? All of your hopes are in God. That's what it looks like, right? What does it look like to be in love with God? That all of your trust is in God. Like God, not government, Not health care, not your spouse, not your children. Well, when I get older, my kids are going to take care of me. No, the Lord will be your provider. He will be your help. He will be your defender. He will be your shield. And when it is time, brother, sister, it'll be time. He is all that I need, right? A, A heart that is in love with God treasures God most, most. Like I treasure God more than I treasure anything else. In the Bible, Jesus speaks, where's your treasure? Because that's where your heart is. heart that is in love with God reasons that God's will is always best. And God's ways are always right. It's just reason, man, God is so good. His, his, his ways are right. And I'm okay with that. It is well with my soul. God, a heart that is in love with God thinks on God on a regular basis, right? When you were dating, you knew what that was about. You'd be at work and you couldn't work. So, oh, I just can't wait to be with them. I wonder what they're going to wear tonight. Oh, what kind of flowers will I pick out for her? She holds my hand, I'm going to puke. <laughs> Heart that is in love with God feels the things of God. They love what God loves. They they want to do They They cherish what God cherishes. And so, because of that, I love people differently, right? Because God has loved me. Be- because of that, I, I, I have a different perspective on what success looks like, right? Because, because Christ's kingdom is like upside down. And so, so I, I may actually give away more than I save. <laughs> I might invest that. And so people say, you're crazy. Yes, I am crazy for Jesus. And I will probably die poor, but I have invested wisely, Life like that, I seek to love and lead my kids because God has done that for me. I I, I give my best at work and at school and at church because God gave his best in Christ for me, and I'm still trying to wrap my heart around that. Right? It's a life of love. It's a life of love. So what do we do with all that? Um, going to wrap it up with applications. So here's how this rolls through August. I'll be gone one week of August, not next week, but a little later on. But all the way up until the last week of August, we're going to be in this little mini-series. The final week, we're going to focus on how this impacts us collectively as a church, and we're going to talk about kind of a new vision and direction. But, But between now and then, we've got to talk about individuals, because individuals are what make up the church as a whole. And so let me speak to you first and foremost Uh, This morning, and we're gonna start with these three R words. Number one, I want you to remember the time in your life when God was enough. Maybe there's more than one. Maybe it's not the time, it's just a time. But remember a time in your life when God was absolutely enough, right? That's that's what what, what the scripture says. Remember the height from once you have fallen. Yet I hold this against you. You've forsaken your first love. Remember when you loved God more than anything else. Just remember that. So we have to start there. And maybe that sounds bad. Maybe it sounds mean. But if you're not in love with God, you need to think about what life was like when you were in love with God. That's God's word. We should think about it. We should want it. We should want it. So we start there. Number two, repent. Repent of all the things that we have done that were not done out of love for God. Repent of all the things that we have done that were not done out of love for God. Repentance is a military term in the Greek that I'm marching in one direction and I stop and I pull an about face and I begin to march in the opposite direction, right? So the church of Ephesus, they're doing all kinds of good works. They're testing false teaching. They're they're excellent. They're doing excellent things, but they've forsaken their love for God. They're not doing those things out of a a love for God. They're not in love with God anymore. And God says, stop and turn around. Stop and do, do you know that God may call you to stop ministry for a time to capture your heart again? Do you know that, that that's, that's like biblical and it could just stop it. Stop doing it with the wrong heart. Turn around and, and, and march back towards me. Listen, discipleship is important. We've been commissioned to go and make disciples. But do you know what kind of disciples you make if you don't have a love for God? Really terrible disciples. If if what you're doing is not out of a love for God, but it's just because you feel like you have to or no one else will or or, or God's going to be angry if you don't, you don't make really good disciples. I'm just going to be honest with you. You make disciples that have the same attitude about God that you have. Mm. And that's not what the world needs. The world needs disciples that are passionately in love with the God that has pursued them and saved them in spite of themselves. That's what the world needs. A radical love is what the world needs. So we've got to love God, and so we've got to repent of all the things we've done that are not done out of a love for God, even the things that we've considered excellent. And lastly, we have to return to a place where our love for God rules over every aspect of our lives. We've got to return to a place where our love for God rules over every aspect of our lives. Now, this is different from repentance. Ready? Ready? So repentance, I'm walking in one way, okay, and and I stop and I pull a 180 and I start walking uh, back in the opposite direction. That's repentance, right? But returning means that I continue to walk in that opposite direction till I actually arrive at my destination, which is love for God right? See, a lot of us, at some point in our lives, we get convicted that we're not living a life where we actually love God or we're not living. And so we repent of things and we start walking back, but then it gets tough. And so we stop. So after all, I'm excellent. I'm better off than I was back there. So I stop. God doesn't say just repent. He says, return. <laughs> like you have to keep walking in repentance till you arrive at your destination, which is loving God with all that you are and all that you have. That's the heart. That's where we're headed. That's what we need. That's what God wants of you. That is where he aims. God aims for your heart and he expects your heart to aim for his. Would you pray with me this morning, Lord Jesus?